0: What does it mean to settle, as to invade? This question is at the heart of many debates about what it means to be Australia today. People in this country argued for a long time that to recognise Australia was born out of an invasion, well that would fracture the whole skeleton of our legal system, at least according to the High Court of Australia. Australia's national mythology is centred around the noble British frontiersman discovering this endless, bountiful continent, unused and unsettled, and under his dominion and guidance, transformed it into the country it is today. But what happens when that land was settled and was being used, and the people who were there before aren't all too happy about this new situation? What does it mean to settle or to invade? That's a theme that's going to weave itself through this story, as we explore the frontier history of Queensland through the lens of the native police. Because settle carries a certain tone to it, doesn't it? Settle. Go out into the big bright world, find a patch of land you like, take it up, build a farm, maybe a village, who knows. A common definition of settle is to go live somewhere permanently. And while Europeans certainly did settle in Australia, That word obscures a significant chapter of Australian frontier history, the history of violence. What does it mean to settle or invade? Because when you think invasion, certain images again spring to mind. Generals conducting campaigns, clearly demarked borders, formations of military units, and soldiers clashing in war. And while the conquest of Australia by the British was perhaps by no means a typical invasion... What this story, I think, is going to show is that indigenous Australians on the front lines of British settlement did not just accept the yoke of the British, die out from disease or run away, but often contested the land for protracted periods of time before being overwhelmed by acts of extraordinary repudiatory violence. And yet we forget this violence. We forget it in our history textbooks and we forget it in our political narratives, when people like the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison addressed the nation proclaiming there was no history of slavery in Australia or the current opposition leader Peter Dutton who refused to apologise for walking out of the nation's apology for the stolen generation for 15 years. And while the right wing liked to play identity politics and racist dog whistling, we cannot forget both sides of government have let indigenous people languish, delivering weak policies and refusing to engage in meaningful discussions on treaty. This intercivilizational violence has been obscured for a century in what some have called either the Great Australian Amnesia or a Conspiracy of Silence. This amnesia or silence is not from a dearth of primary records, for at the time of events there was little shying away from the reality of violence and mass killings. Rather, it came later in the tellings and retellings in the creation of the Australian mythos. One settler, Cora Mills, captures this divide, writing in his 1890s memoir on Colonial Queensland, stating, There is very little dispersing, a euphemism for killings, going on now in the colonies. However, what there is must be done very much on the quiet, or you may get into trouble. But in my time, they were dispersed by the hundreds, if not thousands. When one begins to look deeper into the records of the time, it becomes increasingly difficult to come to terms with what one has been told and what appears in the text. The frequent frank admissions by settlers and colonial authorities highlights an often total disregard for indigenous peoples with reports of casual violence and brutal indiscriminate reprisals recounted in detail. Further, the reality of violence itself is not the only topic that became subjected to this cultural amnesia. The idea of Aboriginal culture or civilization itself has been repeatedly subjected to this forgetting with the backing of both colonial and modern government institutions in order to provide a clean canvas with which to paint the Australian mythos. But what is it when one culture, through violence and coercion, Attempts to erase that of another's. What does it mean to settle as to invade? That question will sit there in the background as we explore this story. And some further notes on storytelling beforehand are important. While initially this project set out to track a somewhat chronological history of the force and the general employ of violence, emphasising key moments where pertinent, the significant gaps in the record make this a difficult task. So while I'll try to keep it moving somewhat chronologically from the conquest of southeast and southwest Queensland in the 1840s to 50s, central Queensland in the 60s, and western and northern frontiers from the 1870s onwards, some deviations will occur, especially upon discussions regarding overarching themes. Lastly, before we begin, I'm painfully aware of the extreme absence of aboriginal voices in this narrative. And the unfortunate reality is, in this time period, very few Aboriginal voices were recorded. Those living on the frontiers of white settlement often had little to no use of English, and the white invaders had little interest in making an effort to record those voices. That in some way ties back to the theme I've been mentioning. What does it mean, to settle, as to invade? Because history is written by the conquerors, and so that leaves us in this situation where for the most part only one side to this conflict has a voice, and some of the time that side will take great strides to hide what may have happened. However, where available, some oral accounts, stories passed down through families, are available. But for most of this accounting, we are only going to hear about the Aboriginals caught up in this struggle, not from them. There are sympathetic European ears from time to time, which will try to give voice to the plight of Aboriginal people. But still, it is about them. We never really get to hear their experiences from them. And so we may never really know the true scale of violence, how many were killed, or how this personally affected the Aboriginal people of Queensland. But we're going to do the best we can. On the 24th of April, 1848, a decade prior to the grant of Queensland's colony status, Commandant Frederick Walker, of what would become the Queensland Native Police, arrived in the northern New South Wales town of Wariolda. He was appointed a year prior at 28 years of age. Walker had been tasked with establishing a paramilitary force of Aboriginal mounted troopers, based on the British colonial model. The troopers were to be supervised under the auspices of white officers, and utilised to conduct violent operations against the various Indigenous peoples of Australia. While the murder of Indigenous Australians was technically illegal, Indigenous Australians were also deemed incapable of giving evidence in colonial courts. This built-in feature of the colonial legal system was no doubt kept in mind when creating the corpse, allowing the native police to operate outside the law to conduct their operations and protect white officers from prosecution. The force was originally established in Daniloquan, near the southern border of New South Wales. Upon Walker's arrival to the area, he immediately set about consolidating and training a group of 14 Aboriginal men from four language groups. Oral accounts handed down by descendants of troopers have noted that participation in the force was often coercive troopers' families may have been threatened with violence or been provided the option of jail or the corpse. Once trained, Walker's initial group then set off on a gruelling 1,800-kilometre journey to what would become New South Wales' northern border. Their journey would take them through some of Australia's harshest landscapes. Their horses died en route, leaving all to walk and their rations were depleted for 17 days and could subsist solely off what they could get from the land. Upon arrival, the force set about subduing the local Aboriginal population surrounding the McIntyre region. One of the force's first official encounters was with a mob around the squatter camp of William Butler Tooth. Upon arriving at the camp, Walker found Aboriginals attacking Tooth's cattle and promptly engaged them with brutal effect. Tooth later reflected on the carnage wreaked on his property thusly. The blacks were so completely put down on that occasion, and terrified at the power of the police, that they never committed any more depredations near there. The place was quiet at once, and property became 50% more valuable. Another early encounter of walkers in the McIntyre region, involving a road carrier or trader, would foreshadow the unqualified efficacy and brutality of the force in pursuit of hostile Aboriginal populations in alien lands. A few days before Walker's arrival in the region, the only carrier then on the road in the district was known as the Smiler. He arrived at Bebo Station with supplies on his carts for the McIntyre, The Smiler had been told by his Aboriginal boy of the intention of the locals to attack him at his usual camping place about 10 miles down the river where the scrub came down to a point on the bank. The Smiler waited at Bebo for the arrival of the native police, hoping they would escort him past that camping place to where the country was more open. Walker, upon arriving, told Smiler to camp as usual on his old camping ground and to place his carts as close to the river bank as he could, pulling the tarp around his carts, but leaving the ends next to the river open and to turn out his bullets. Walker said he would be there as soon as the Smiler had camped. Walker and his police, leaving their horses about a quarter of a mile up the river, crept along the river, close under its banks, which by flood action were at least three feet high. They got underneath the carts. A short time afterwards, two Aboriginal men came out of the scrub and asked the Smiler to give them tobacco. The Smiler took a piece out of his pocket and was breaking a piece off for each when one said, No break'em, we want'em all. And suppose you no give it, me take'em all together, Dre Bullocks. Upon the Smiler's refusal, the Aboriginals gave a cooey and a large tribe dressed in war paint came out of the scrub. Watts stated that the police discharged their guns the local mob immediately retreated inside the scrub where formerly they were safe as no white man dared follow. However, the native police followed in quick pursuit and in the words of Watts, the number they killed, no one but their commander and themselves ever knew. Another local settler recounted of the forces arrival to town Scarcely a man would go into the district for double the wages paid anywhere else, and no woman would go near it at all. The hut keepers would not venture to go down to a water hole without being armed with a gun or a pistol. In three months after the police came, the district was so quiet a man could walk about anywhere. Chapter Note, Historical Context Section. These skirmishers, were vicious precursors to a pattern of state-sponsored racial violence repeated across Queensland for the next 50 years. The paramilitary force, led by various white officers over its lifetime, was stationed across the frontiers of the new expanding colony to execute and forcefully subdue local Aboriginal presence. As one region was subdued, the force was moved either further north or west to bring new lands... Under heel and quash any resistance. The violence and psychological terror employed often left local populations all but exterminated upon the arrival of large scale white settlement. The myth constructed and advocated by successive colonial governments that Australia was terra nullius, a sparsely populated and underused land, was thuggishly compelled into existence by both settlers. And colonial forces, such as the native police. The use of language to further compel this myth by those complicit in the execution of genocide is laid plainly bare. Regions weren't subject to extermination, but were rather made quiet. By 1885, the devastation wreaked by this force upon the Aboriginal population of Queensland led one mine manager, Charles Lilly to describe the plight of indigenous peoples. They are driven back to the Spinifex Ranges, and when I was not on the Nicholson, they were living on ants. They dare not come to where there was game for fear of kidnapping parties. They were the poorest things I have ever seen. Perfect skeletons, nothing to eat, and sleeping in holes in the ground. The exact number with human lives expunged by violence over this time period is hard to estimate. Europeans had no clear view as to how many people inhabited the area before their arrival, and many deaths were not recorded. However, the violent death toll of Indigenous Australians in in Queensland from the native police has been estimated by various academics to be between somewhere around 24,000 at the low end 41,000 in the middle, or even upwards to 100,000 people, according to recent archaeological research. Yet despite this widespread oppression and structural violence in the face of overwhelming force, Aboriginal people fought tooth and nail, driven beyond desperation, to maintain their independence from white invaders, as the last quote illustrated. This overwhelming use of violence is a fundamental part of Australia's history and illustrates a picture of white invasion, not civilised settlement. For much of the violence, as modern historical investigations have uncovered, had a distinctly military flavour. Yet it is this part of Australia's history to this day that remains fundamentally misunderstood, understated, or even flatly denied. Before delving deeper into the gripping history of Australia's most lethal paramilitary force used en masse over decades against local indigenous people, I think it's important we stop a moment to unpack some of the historical context that led to its deployment. Contrary to the colonial myth, local mobs did not immediately die out from disease upon arrival of white settlers or flee in terror. Many times upon the arrival of white settlement, a bloody period of resistance ensued. Queensland was no different. Brisbane in the 1830s was not the metropolitan city we know today. In fact, it was barely a settlement. Aboriginal mobs in the area greatly outnumbered the foreign white squatters coming to start a new life. However, by the mid-40s, Europeans outnumbered the local mobs by around 800. Brisbane by that time had a population of twelve hundred white settlers, and many of the remaining mobs were relegated to subsistence living, charity handouts, or sexual slavery. The anger felt by indigenous people, by their displacement from land and country, that they had inhabited and passed on knowledge of for thousands of generations, and the abject fear of a group of untoward white settlers in a foreign land surrounded by many groups of hostile humans they don't understand or respect would be the driving force of a bloody conflict that lasted decades. The 40s were a period of rapid expansion for the young settlement, which subsequently led to periodic eruptions of gruesome violence. The Yuggera people of Morinan Bay and the Turbul of Brisbane and Kuperu were the most widely reported as raiding groups unsurprising given their proximity to large European settlement. In 1846, Aboriginal raiding parties killed and speared cattle and sheep on virtually every pastoral run in the Moridan area. The Brisbane correspondent wrote at the time, They are not killing out of hunger. Rather, this shows they had hoped to drive the white settlers out by attacking their economic base. Contrary to what white pastoralists had been led to believe, the Aboriginal mobs were not a dejected, dumb, or subservient race. Rather, they were proud owners of a land they would rather die for than forfeit unchallenged. For white squatters, many of whom had been sent out on Britain's notorious transportation policy, this realisation it drove them into fits of terror. Queensland at this time was not yet an independent colony, and in order to get government support, most correspondence had to make its way back to colonial administrators in Sydney. Isolated and terrified, local squatters often took the law into their own hands, poisoning wells or forming local militias to exterminate or quell local populations. Aboriginal resistance during this early period in Queensland's history was widespread with reported raids on the Copper Plains, Hill End, West End, Kangaroo Point, Breakfast Creek and Eagle Farm. In 1843, early in the settlement of the area, the Yuggera people, led by Multigura, waged a successful guerrilla campaign to stop pastoralist supplies getting through to the Darling Downs. This campaign culminated in an ambush of loaded carts in the shadows of Mount Davidson, known as the Battle of One Tree Hill. Moltogara and his people were able to overwhelm a large cavalcade of pastoralists, including 18 armed men. This ambush was against the backdrop of a sustained guerrilla campaign lasting many years that wreaked economic havoc on the white invaders. At times the Yuggera forces numbered some 500 warriors, organised in coordinated attacks across the region. In reprisal for the Battle of One Tree Hill, squatters hunted, harried and shot many Yuggera people. William Duncan, a collector of customs at the time, wrote of the reprisals. The murder of a white settler by a tribe living about 40 miles from the settlement was the signal for a sort of general uprising to hunt down the unfortunate blacks, several of whom were deliberately gunned down and killed. A peaceable old man named the Duke of York, who was in the habit of cutting wood down for me, was fired at by the constables in the public street. His camp then attacked by another party of whites, and one man was shot dead, another wounded in three places and a woman late in pregnancy died three days later of shock. Distinctions of innocence were routinely ignored by both sides, with women and children frequently the victims of increasingly horrific tit-for-tat reprisals. It is likely that these were not the only deaths that occurred during this reprisal either. Attempts were rarely made at all by white squatters to communicate with Aboriginal people, let alone negotiate. It speaks largely to the arrogance of the white squatters that they almost never internalised or understood why local mobs attacked them. It was always depicted as an act of mindless savagery, never one of self-defence and existential survival. In 1847, the white population of Brisbane reached 4,000 people strong. And yet the settlement still maintained a siege-like mentality. Two men, Coppen and Gamble, that year poisoned 50 to 60 local people at Whiteside Station in the Pine Rivers District. Later that same year, a settler shot an Aboriginal boy, which outraged the Bigamble people. The settler's son was killed in retaliation. This led to a year-long reign of terror by the settlers, fellow landowners and stockmen, in which at least... 47 Aboriginal people died in a series of attacks around the future Gundawindi area. Colonial Queensland author George Carrington wrote of attitudes at the time, Every man is his own policeman, the community his law court, and every man goes with his own life in his hands and carries in his belt and at his pillow the lives of others. As popular historian Jonathan Richard states, In examining the operations of the native police, we can see how colonialism operates as a clash between two law systems. Indigenous law, based on principle and respect for elders, insists that individuals must defend their traditional country and their right to survival. Settler law, based on precedent and respect for authority, regards such self-preservation as an affront to civilized beliefs and values. In this context of fear and retaliatory violence between clashing cultures, colonial governments at the time decided it was best if violence was to flow from the European side, then it would best to be done under the auspices of the state. The British, to this end, had many useful resources at its disposal. Perhaps most importantly was the British colony's network of warrior guilds and military tribes, who considered themselves belonging to a tight-knit fraternity of brothers this network acted as an artificial community built to replace their lost homes in britain the violence perpetrated against the indigenous queensland peoples was not new but rather a refinement of practices both in the southern states and abroad migrating with the network i open this section with a quote from Charles Eden, a colonist at the time, that provides some insight into prevailing attitudes and views of indigenous people. It was a question of absolute necessity, a choice between the protection of the pastoral industry of the country or the abandonment of that pursuit by the colonists. Nay further, it was a choice between the sons of Japhet and the sons of Cush, for they could not coexist. Fear of the other was not the only factor that led to the justification of the native police. As we can see already, the resort to violence was commonplace. But what was it that led Englishmen to see this violence as a mercy? Or as Australian historian Jonathan Richards asks, what might cause frontier colonists to publicly state the native police were a question of necessity, of a choice between Japhet and Cush. And there is your first hint for anyone that caught it, the elephant in the room when talking about any clash of cultures, particularly around this time period, that of race relations. The sons of Japhet are Noah's children, biblically speaking, and Cush was the biblical name of Ethiopia. Noah's prophecy. Your seed will be ugly and dark-skinned when he cursed his son Ham. And thusly coloured people were biblically condemned to perpetual civility in order to justify their domination by Europeans. These religious justifications had strong sway over the early years of Australian colonisation. However, by the end of the century, the era of progress would be in full swing, providing a whole new suite of ideological reasons to further condemn peoples of colour to civility and to death. industrialization, capitalism and imperialism were all coming into their own during this time, giving rise to the almost theological era of progress, so-called. Of the rise of imperial civilizations spanning continents, where science was advancing at an astonishing rate never seen before, and where the world, once unknowable, was becoming the malleable tool of man, an age where Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species was published in the same year Queensland was formed as a colony. Survival of the fittest, first coined by English sociologists in 1850, became the perfect rationalisation of the status quo of contest. The anthropologist Marvin Harris captures the mood perfectly when he stated, Origin was much more than a scientific treatise. It was a great book precisely because of the diverse cultural themes it consolidated and expressed. It dramatised and legitimised what many people from scientists to politicians had obscurely felt to be true without themselves being able to put it into words. Now, we know now, of course, from our modern perspectives, all the faults that flow from these lines of thinking. But at the time, these were revolutionary thoughts. People looked around and they saw a lot of change, a lot of violence, and they had to describe it, give it a cause and a purpose. And that purpose was progress. Progress of the race and of the human species. As Evans and Co describe, They strove to preserve in Queensland a distant white bastion of an empire whose strength and successes they tried to explain more in terms of racial superiority than those of simply technological and economic advantage. Leading journals began discussing the unique British racial mixtures that made them, quote, successful conquerors, colonizers, and traders, navigators, and all else that has given them so wide an area on the world's surface to occupy, use, and so many distinct races and mixed people to govern. This imagined supremacy was contrasted against the inferiority of other races. In 1867, Frederick Farrar, interestingly the poor bearer at Charles Darwin's funeral, wrote, To the Aryan apparently belongs the destinies of the future. The races whose institutions and inventions are despotism, fetishism and cannibalism, the races who rest content in placid sensuality and unprogressive decrepitude, can hardly hope to contend in the great struggle for existence. This attitude of British supremacy and the great struggle for existence and its violent implications for other people was laid unapologetically bare in a statement published in the journal Progress in 1900. It is true that our colonists have been guilty of occasional barbarities, that the blood of the innocent has more than once stained the pages of the English colonisation annals. We have never hesitated to use force when it was necessary, The first proceeding when dealing with people of an inferior race was to put them underfoot, then keeping them down, and if they attempted to rise, so much worse for them, for the first principle of British colonisation is the absolute supremacy of our authority. In the 1870s, a paper was published classifying the seven races imagined at the time, with Aboriginals occupying the lowest rung, And then, on top, the Indo-German, Caucasian type. After the initial brutal period of frontier violence, race theory was paternalized, stepping back from extermination to conservation, but only because the Englishman by then regarded the natives as part of his stock in trade and protected and cared for them on the same principle that induced him to feed and shelter his cattle, that he might have the greatest return for his investment. The British colonist was held as the most esteemed of the British race, and those in Australia were viewed with particular admiration. As late as 1917, the director of the Queensland Institute of Tropical Medicine advocated Queenslanders foster a clannishness amongst themselves, in order to cultivate a new British race, bred of the sun and toil. The Anglo people were also said to be men whose characters are unblemished, moral men, men of principle, purpose and integrity, and who are in every way worthy of the name. But the violence conducted by and on behalf of the British colonisers stands in often stark contrast to such suppositions. It is impossible to overstate how heavily this racial theory permeated throughout colonial Queensland and shaped racial relations over the preceding century. As either evolutionary superior race theory, or envisioned as biblical crusaders taking by force the land of the Canaanites, the British colonizers adopted a lens that dehumanised local indigenous people in order to expunge their lives with impunity in their quest for domination. Now I'm sorry for getting so heavily into the weeds for a moment there, but the context is important if we're to fully appreciate the history and the stories which are to follow. We last left off, chronologically speaking, around 1849, with the formation of the Queensland Native Police, In response to growing concerns of residents of Brisbane and the Darling Downs, the New South Wales colonial government commissioned a force led by Frederick Walker. The use of mounted Aboriginal patrols to repress Indigenous resistance was common parlance in colonial New South Wales at this time. They largely operated in the central regions of modern-day New South Wales. Frederick Filibuster Walker gained his appointment to this force through his colonial connections and his previous experiences in crushing Aboriginal resistance. His appointment and reputation paint a clear picture regarding how the force was to be employed. Prior to his official appointment, he had conducted reprisal operations in the western districts of New South Wales. The moniker filibuster, at the time, had a more foreboding meaning than in contemporary political parlance. Filibuster was an irregular military adventurer and one who engages in unauthorised warfare against a foreign state. In 1845-46, Walker was a superintendent of a farm in the Murrabidgee area. References to his time around the area, chastening local tribes with the assistance of two Aboriginal men who were, quote, spoiling for a fight against an alien tribe, allude to Walker's early frontier experience. As flagged, the group formed around Murribidgee, and while parts of the force continued to operate in New South Wales, by 1849 much of the force's operations were dedicated to crushing resistance along the colony's northern frontier in what would become southern Queensland. Over the months of May to June in 1849, the Gamble resistance in the McIntyre and Condamine River regions were overwhelmed by native police as they roamed the district. According to an account of one William Telfer, Walker tried to prevent Sable Warriors from Surat joining the McIntyre River people, noting, He meant to fight them separately, not giving them any time to join their forces. So he travelled in the night, getting within a short distance of their camp. Just at daybreak, they made an attack on the sleeping camp. Some of them fled, hearing horses coming. Making for the scrub, but were met by the native police, who drew their swords, slashing the fugitives, a great number were slain. Also a lot shot dead. Thus was broken up this large tribe. Nearly 100 perished under the sword and the bullet of the white man. Complicated man, Walker held controversial views regarding Aboriginal people at the time. Walker advocated a method of bringing in the Aboriginals, forcing them on to pastoral stations so they could be easily controlled. He believed squatters should allow peaceful Aboriginals to stay on the stations. Those who stayed away were consequently regarded as potential enemies and were at a high risk of being targeted in punitive missions. Walker also promoted his troopers to differentiate and elevate themselves away from other Aboriginals, encouraging the use of denigrating terms such as charcoals to describe Aboriginals not involved in the police. Despite his advocacy for station Aboriginals, Walker and his troopers gained a well-earned reputation of brutality, in the early years of the force's operations, and their measure of success was the resulting increase in land values. These first actions of the native police reduced to great effect Aboriginal resistance against squatters in the McIntyre and Condamine regions. In one year of crisscrossing the region, Walker's force subdued all Begamble resistance. One of the final conflicts in this year long resistance occurred on 9 July, where a group of thirty begamble people were caught cutting up a beast of a local pastoralist. They tried to escape but were driven back. The native police rushed the Aboriginal defenders and fired upon them with muzzle loading carbines at twelve paces. The massacre is recorded in the Maitland, Mercury. Spears and boomerangs were flying in every direction, the flashing of firearms showing the blacks the position of their assailants, The yells of the savages answered by the war cry of the police and the ring of carbines have had most an exciting effect. It is surprising that the government does not declare the disturbed districts in a state of siege and thus relieve the commandant for his great responsibility. Why does the government not at once acknowledge there is a war when it is so notorious? Seven days after this event, Walker was warned by the Legislative Council not to commit acts of aggressive warfare against the native population. Yet his central crime, which becomes increasingly clear in subsequent colonial records, was his indiscretion. The crime was that people should know, and not the killings themselves. As Walker, feeling vindicated himself, wrote back to the colonial secretary in November 1850, In the McIntyre country I use my own discretion, and although the Honourable Attorney-General told me he feared I had not acted legally throughout, the results showed that I was morally right, for I affirm that the country of Cumberland is now more secure from the aggressions of the Aboriginal natives. Speaking of the region after its subjugation, William Telfer recalls, It was not unusual in the 60s to find their skeletons in the bends of the river, where they had been shot down and destroyed. Where once there were potentially thousands, after just four years in the region, only a hundred Begamble people would remain. What does it mean to settle, as to invade? I mean, it's hard to get your head around, especially for me. I grew up here, around these areas on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. And for me, It's hard to not imagine that there isn't a couple of million people living up somewhere north of me. But you have to imagine at this time, it's the radical front line of a new British conquest, a dividing line between two cultures, a fission point, if you will. There aren't any more British people beyond this point, or if there are, it's a handful of pastoralists here and there taking extreme risk with their life. What is on the other side... In their mind it's the wild, but it's not empty, it's far from it. This pattern of setting up a base of operations, spending time to provoke and then violently crush resistance, packing up and moving north and westward to repeat the process, will continue for the next 50 years. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look at it, when I read this stuff, and really take it in, it sure looks like an invasion. I admit it's slow, it takes place over the course of decades, but the operations of this force when inspected closely can't help but take on a military aura. It starts to make you wonder where this notion of settlement even started, because it certainly wasn't there at the time. Early settlers were of no mistake that they were locked in a war of aggression and conquest from the local people. However, in their minds, this was just par of the course the inevitable outcome of nature. In the same year, 1849, conflicts are noted in Surat, some 450 kilometres west of Brisbane, as land claims move increasingly north-west. The same pattern of resistance and violent reprisals continue throughout the Condamine and McIntyre River regions throughout the mid-50s. The length of resistance, despite brutal massacres, That would wipe out entire groups in a day is noteworthy as over a decade later the surat encampment in 1864 records a skirmish with some two to three hundred indigenous peoples on the boulogne river northeast of st george where again settler davis recalls some black fellows called for their women and were refused possession no force was attempted but the blacks, strong in number, rounded up and drove away every working horse that was on that place. The native police in Surat were informed and went in pursuit. They came upon the blacks, numbering between two and three hundred, shepherding the horses. The lieutenant gave the word to fire and a fearful conflict began. The blacks stood their ground bravely and fought until dead lay thick about them and only retreated when darkness set in. When morning broke upon the scene, they had all disappeared, and nothing but the dead remained. This time, it was not uncommon for pastoralists to let Aboriginal women in onto the stations, and then withhold access to their families, to try and gain greater control over local groups. It is again worth observing, at this stage, how Aboriginal groups were aware of the economic importance of livestock, and retaliated not always first by violence, but by trying to attack the settlers' economic base. Despite over a decade worth of extermination and oppression in the McIntyre Condamine regions, groups numbering 300 were still organising to protect their country and independence. Fast-forwarding briefly, on 12 October 1854, Walker was dismissed from the service for impropriety of conduct due to his heavy drinking. However, it is also likely that his advocacy for peaceful station aboriginals and his own condemnation of the force contributed to his termination. After his dismissal, he continued to live on the frontier and briefly formed another illegal force of 10 ex-troopers from the native police, ...to protect settlers in the upper Dawson region. It is worth observing that a significant number of Walker's Aboriginal troopers departed the force with him. While it's unclear why Walker induced more loyalty in his Aboriginal troopers than many other officers and commandants of the force... ...it's possible his tolerance for station Aboriginals, and also perhaps the troopers as witnesses and perpetrators of some of the worst colonial violence... Walker's troopers may have decided that the best of an increasingly dangerous world for their people would be to cast their lot to Walker's protection. As a final and haunting last note on the native police's first decade or so of action in southern Queensland, we're going to examine the Hornet Bank Massacre. Eleven Europeans were killed in Hornet Bay in 1857 by the local Jimean people. The Fraser family stocked on the land of the local Jimin people. Their sons were infamous for taking and raping local indigenous women. Mrs. Martha Fraser, the mother, expected harm would come, and all agreed after the massacre it was without doubt the central cause of the atrocity that followed. Mrs. Fraser had encouraged Sub-Lieutenant Nicol of the native police to reprove her sons forcibly, for taking the young Aboriginal maidens. The year prior, over Christmas, the clan was poisoned en masse with pudding laced with strychnine, which raised tension significantly. The Hornet Bay murders were retaliatory, and as a result, in order to treat crime with crime, the white women were raped for the rape of Jiman women. Native police were responsible the deaths of at least 70 Aboriginal people immediately following the Hornet Bay murders. These occurred alongside several white settler death squads, whom killed hundreds if not thousands over the following years in retaliatory attacks. The true impact of white retribution, particularly for the Hornet Bank killing, is seen when considering Thomas Davies, a colonist at the time's, observation that... In the fifties and sixties, my occupation frequently took me over the Dawson country, necessitating my travelling via Hornet Bank, Burunda and Mount Hutton. Often I have ridden over the very ground where the police came up with the murder of the Fraser family and saw the bleaching bones of the dead blacks strewn here and there. A gruesome sight, full ribbed bodies, fleshless arms, disjointed leg bones and ghastly grinning skulls peeping out of the grass. And I have passed the place in the dead of night with yet twenty miles before me through wilderness without a soft side. Nature in what always seemed to me her worst aspect but never without a shudder. To have wended one's way through the Dawson scrub leaving the bones of the slaughtered blacks far behind was joy indeed. That imagery, poetic in its unflinching stark horror, feels like something out of a Stephen King novel, to have such beautiful country contrasted with such a brutal disregard for human life left out with no shame for all to see. There are so many contemporary reports of colonists passing by sites of conflict with the remains of Aboriginal people left out on display. You read so many you get numb, but they were no doubt intentional, Violent demonstrations of European dominance over the land. After the Fraser killings, some local groups fled as refugees from the retribution to the Darling Downs. Yet there was to be no reprieve for refugees, with collective punishment and retribution the order for the day. The killings followed them on to the Downs in short order. A second lieutenant, Frederick Carr, of the native police reported clashes on the Condamine River at Bendermere riding. Following the tracks, I came on the blacks, a mob upwards of 100, all of the Upper Dawson tribe encamped within a quarter mile of the huts on the station. On my approaching the camp, the mob gathered in a body and commenced a most determined assault on the police. During the affray, 15 blacks were shot, amongst others, one Borlai, a notorious black, ...who was believed to have been the leader of the Hornet Bank murders. The Upper Dawson people had fled after witnessing the widespread massacre of their peoples. No doubt they did indeed put up a heroic defence when the native police followed them onto the Downs. Even if the Dawson Aboriginal peoples conceded that Borley had committed a crime, as opposed to upholding traditional law... There is no doubt in my mind that turning him over would have spared the Upper Dawson peoples from retaliatory massacres. The native police, following fresh on their mobs' heels, following the flight from the Upper Dawson, these agents of European terror could have been seen in no other light than as executioners come to end what the lynch mobs had failed to finish. It is worth noting, as one hears about these incidents, how often massacres and lynch mobs are prompted not by the murder of white colonists and invaders, as happened in Hornet Bay, but by the simple disturbance of property and livestock. This was highlighted in an earlier quote where Aboriginal men, trying to regain access to women from their mob, shepherded horses away from a station And were hunted down in reprisal. This should demonstrate the falsehood inherent in trying to construct Aboriginal death rates, as some historians do, by referring to the number of colonists killed and then multiplying it by 10 or whatever other number they pull from their arse. Aboriginal people were killed for being there and being in the way. They were not killed necessarily for repudiatory violence or for attacking European people. And as a final observation before wrapping up, I wanna emphasize that the 11 murders at Hornet Bank and the retaliatory massacres that followed by the native police, squatters, and colonial lynch mobs are in their own right a significant chapter in in the Australian annals. The brief coverage I provided today does not serve to convey the horrors that followed and the impact the event had on the burgeoning colony. It was merely to indicate that the native police were one among many groups that were involved. I will likely circle back to this event and cover it on its own terms when time allows. Jumping forward in time, in 1859 Queensland was formally granted colony status and with this, the pastoralist expansion north and westward accelerated. With the south-east region effectively under control, attention turned to what is now central Queensland. Removed from the more populous south, the frontier killings committed by the settlers appeared more frequent and brutal. Squatters dominated the First Parliament and increased the funding of the native police. In 1860, police encampments were established in Mary River and Ronkhampton. In the following years, this extended to Marlborough, the Peak Downs, Warrego River, Cape River, Bowen, and Dalrymple to name a few. And this is where we will leave the story today. In the next episode, we will explore further the actions of the native police as they expand into this region of central Queensland, and the violence that continued to be carried out in the name of Australian conquest. I hope you found this valuable and informative, and I hope you'll continue to join me as we discuss what it means to settle, as to invade, and the history of the Queensland Native Police. jumping forward in time,